This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Important message to get out to the world. There's a lot of ways to answer that. Now, if you're watching the news and current events, you might conclude that getting vaccinated is the most important message to get out right now, because it's everywhere, right? You get it in commercials and, and everything, right? If you're following social media, you might conclude that achieving equity and social justice is the most important message to get out to the world right now. If you're following the climate change community, you might conclude that the most important message is to make the change to sustainable living so that we can leave cleaner and leave a better earth for generations to come. If you're listening to financial gurus, you might conclude that investing your money wisely for the best return for your retirement is the most important message. If you're a Beatles fan, maybe the most important message is from one of their songs. All you need is love. Or if you're a Whitney Houston fan, maybe the most important message is to learn to love yourself because that is the greatest love of all. There is nothing, no shortage of messages that the world believes is important. But there is only one message that is of first importance for all time. And that is the message that the church has been called to proclaim. That is the word of God. The title of this message is Fight the Good Fight of Faith by Proclaiming the Word. And we'll see from our text that we're called to do three things in order to proclaim the word faithfully. First, realize the seriousness of your charge to proclaim the, the word. Remember why you must proclaim the word and reach the end of your call to proclaim the word. Let's read from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Paul writes, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So first, what we see from this passage is realize the seriousness of your charge. We see that in verses 1 and 2. Paul begins the final part of his letter by making an official charge to young Timothy. He writes, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. And it's as if Paul 
calls Timothy into the highest spiritual court with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ as witnesses. And Paul is testifying under oath to give Timothy this charge. What a solemn, serious moment. Now, how do we know it's a solemn charge? Because who's present? It says, in the presence of God. Speaking of God the Father. God the Father, he is the holy sovereign of the universe. Paul had given Timothy a similar charge back in 1 Timothy, and he said this, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. The Father is the life giver. This is who you are charged in front of. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Paul wrote there, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. That's who this is in front of. Timothy was charged to preach in front of the Creator God who gives life and the one for whom every person exists. How serious. And so it is with the preacher. He is charged before God the Father. But not just the presence of the Father, but also in the presence of Christ Jesus, it says. The solemnity of that charge comes because of who Christ is. And it's described in our text, first, he is the judge of the living and the dead. Now for Paul, that's not some abstract idea. As he's nearing the end of his life, Paul had a clear sense of Christ as his judge. In our text itself, he says this in verse 8, In the future there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. That's what Paul has in mind. This is a serious charge, Timothy. My task is done, and I know the righteous judge, the Lord Jesus, will reward me. And so he calls now Timothy to that same weight, that same sense of this responsibility. He would one day be judged after finishing his course. Would Timothy stay faithful to Christ, the judge? the one whom holds the crown of righteousness. Paul is saying there, be faithful to Christ, Timothy, who like me will one day judge your life's course with either reward or loss. You see, every time the preacher of the word steps up in front of someone or a few and teach and preach, remember their faithfulness to obey the word, their stewardship of study, their passionate delivery will be scrutinized by the Lord. Christ will judge all of our deeds. That should make us sober-minded. That's a solemn charge. He is the judge of the living and the dead. And then he says, by his appearing and his kingdom. Jesus is not just the judge, but he will also return to reign Timothy must take the charge to proclaim seriously in the light of knowing the Lord is coming soon to establish his lasting kingdom upon the earth. And how will he be found? Will he be found as a faithful servant? Will we be found as faithful servants? You see, Paul's words liken back to Christ in Matthew 25 in the parable of the talents. The master had entrusted each of his slaves with an amount of talents, and when the master returned, he would settle accounts with them. 
To the one who gained more talents from his labor, he was given praise as a good and faithful servant, and he entered into the joy of his master. But the one who buried his talent and brought no return, he was called a wicked and lazy slave, and what he had was taken away. See, Jesus is saying that each of us are entrusted with this gospel, with spiritual gifts to minister. And knowing our master is going to return soon, we need to take seriously the charge to be faithful servants to labor for return for the kingdom. Oh, he's returning. The master will return and he will settle accounts. How will we be found? And you know this, don't you? You know, when you're at work, and you got your boss or your manager looking over your shoulder, don't you feel that heightened responsibility to kind of get everything right in their eyes? We should feel that weight of accountability when our labor is being scrutinized. I had this friend, he, he, this was one of his first Sunday schools that he was told to teach, and he was going to teach on the great doctrine of justification by faith. And I don't know if you know my old pastor, but that was a song that he sang well. And so my friend is up there, it's one of his first Sunday schools, and in walks Steve, Pastor Steve, and sits down. And you could see him trembling, <laughs> just feeling the weight, knowing he was being watched, his words were being heard. Well, you multiply that by millions, and it's something about what Paul's saying. You, proclaimer of the word, you are in front of God, your Father, your Creator, who gives life to all, who you exist for, and you're in front of Christ who will judge all your deeds and who is coming back to reign again. Will you be faithful? What a charge. What solemnity to this task. Now just think, when the one who proclaims God's word in any context, they are doing the most important thing in the universe in front of the most important persons in the universe. Praise God. Now what's the task at hand? Preach the word and be ready in season and out of season, verse two. Preach the word, that's the word to proclaim. It's the word to herald this message. It's to herald the word of God. There is one message for us to herald and it's this. Proclaim the word. And then he says, be ready. It has the idea of to stand by or to stand over. It's just as a guard stands over his post on alert for attack. So the proclaimer of the word must stand ready to preach. And he says, when do you do it? When are you ready? In season and out of season, which means all the time. There is no other time than in season or out of season. But here, what it means is, in season, is when it's favorable. When the preaching is favorable, when people are willing to hear you, preach. But then out of season, it means when it's unfavorable, when it's a time when people don't want to hear it, all the more preach. And we know from the context, that's what he's talking about. The context that Paul brings out is these last days and it's unfavorable toward the truth. They're going to be lovers of self, lovers of money, hardened in their hearts, aren't they? It's an unfavorable time. 
And it's clear in the world we see today, that's what, that's what we run into. We have a society that can't stomach biblical truth. And what do we do? Shrink back? No. Proclaim. Be ready in season and out of season. And this, this is the unfavorable season. Be ready. And then we see what the proclamation should include. What should the proclamation include? It says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Strong commands here. To reprove means to expose. When a person preaches, they are called to expose people's sin. Well, that's not very popular now, is it? Expose sin, reprove. He says, rebuke. It means people call people to stop. You see what you didn't, did wrong now, right? You see you're in sin. Now stop where you are. Stop in your tracks. Express that disapproval. God disapproves of that. Stop. And the preacher needs to be specific about this, not just general. Call out the things that they must cease. And then it says exhort. It means to encourage, to appeal, to call people to right living. And notice this, what the preacher's calling is to do. It's that turnaround, isn't it? It's exactly what we saw last week. It's what the scripture does. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. What does the word of God do? It brings about biblical change. It turns the sinner around and brings them back to Christ. And so the preacher, Paul says, you do what the word does. You proclaim what the word does. The point is the proclaimer of God's word is to do in his preaching what the word is made to do. The word reproves, so the preacher must reprove. The word corrects, so the preacher must rebuke and exhort. This is the kind of preaching that we must uphold. This also means that God's provided exactly what we need it's exactly what the preacher needs to be effective. He can accomplish this task because the word does this. God calls them to change lives through the proclamation of the word. And praise God, it's not in him to do that. But he has a word that does that through the power of the spirit. The preacher is fully adequate and equipped if he preaches this. If he doesn't have this, no life change. If he doesn't have the word, he has no message to give. But with the word, he can do what God has called him. It can change lives. One author said this, the goal of preaching is not merely to impart information, but to provide the means of transformation ordained by a sovereign God that will affect the lives and destinies of eternal souls committed to a preacher's spiritual care. Wow, what a responsibility. Any man would shrink back from that idea that I must transform lives. I know I can't do that. But God's word, when it is preached, it does that. 
It's sufficient and powerful to do that in our lives. And that is the kind of preaching we must uphold. That's the kind of preaching that must happen. It must be what's in the church. We can't be satisfied with preaching that just informs or just explains what a text says. The preacher is called to proclaim biblical change. He's called to rebuke, reprove, and exhort. To call them to be transformed by the Spirit's power through the Word. And as they do that, they can be confident that God is going to be faithful to work. Now, you'll remember that this is exactly opposite of how the enemies of truth think of the word. Back in 2 Timothy 3, chapter 5, it says of them, they were holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. See, they put on the show that they believed the word could do this, but in their hearts, they didn't really believe it. Didn't have the power. But we do. That's why we uphold this kind of preaching. So this text has specific application to those who preach the word, but it also has application to every single believer, to you and me. First, it reminds you that you and I must be committed to uphold this kind of preaching in the church. You know, there's a reason why church is not run like a business. If church was only a business, if it was just about filling seats, if it was just about satisfying customers, then Sunday morning would look really different, wouldn't it? Worship would probably look more like a concert with fog machines and special flashing lights and rock star musicians. Well, you guys have rock star musicians. (laughs) But the great thing is they don't have the heart of a rock star. They have the heart of a servant. It's different. You know, Sunday messages would be different, wouldn't they? It would be all about what my felt needs are. If we're all about catering to the audience, it'd be, what are my felt needs? And that's what the message would be about. And sadly, isn't that what most American evangelical churches are doing? This very thing. But this passage is exactly why Sunday morning must not be like that. We must be steadfast and vigilant about keeping the main thing, the main thing, when I say that, I hear my old pastor Steve ringing in my ears. He always said, keep the main thing, the main thing. God says the one central thing concerning Christ's church is the true, biblical, Christ-centered, Christ-exalting preaching of the word. You must uphold this. Don't trade it out for some cheap substitute. Fight to keep this the main thing. Pastor John MacArthur was commenting on this dynamic in the churches, and he commented on a local church in his area. They were doing just this. They put out a survey of what their congregants wanted to hear. And you want to know what the number one thing was? They wanted to know how they can potty train their kids. You see what happens if we are in charge, if we give ourselves to slaves to our felt needs, that's what would be preached. Praise God. God says, no, you and I, we uphold 
the proclamation of God's word. I have no message if not this one. You know what this also means, though? Though you may not be a preacher, the way that you use your gift in the body helps the church focus on her main task, to proclaim the truth. You know, uh, when I was a new parent, I had an infant. Uh, He was driving us crazy at home, crying and taking care of him, and we had never experienced this before. It was, uh, we were drained, and we went, to church, trying to find solace and comfort in God's word. And we bring our little one to the nursery, and he did not like the nursery. He would cry and cry and cry. But we would try to go into the worship center, and, you know, they would give us those pagers or buzzing things. We would be in there 10, maybe 20 minutes, and sure enough, buzz, buzz, buzz. We'd have to go get him, go find out what the problem is. We found that, my wife and I, we couldn't sit through even a full sermon. You know, praise God, my pastor saw that. He saw me walk. Yeah, you, your, your pastor sees you when you walk out, by the way. <laughs> he saw me, and he knew what that was. He knew I was being called out to the nursery. And so in his shepherding, he went to the nursery and said, can we help this family? And there was this beloved sister who's still there right now. She doesn't serve the kids anymore, but I will always be thankful for her. She committed for weeks on end, months, to just be the only person that accepts my son and stays with him so he'll recognize her face and know him and be calm. And she committed to that. And when she did that, lo and behold, I could finally sit under God's word. Man, we were in despair. We needed refreshment from the word and we couldn't even sit under 15 minutes. But finally, because a saint was willing, the powerful word of Christ could come and penetrate and minister to our heart. Do you know that your gift can be used to uphold the preaching of the word this way? Do you know that you are not healthy unless you yourself are exercising that gift, that all of us need you? Do you realize that? Oh, God can use you to make the main thing the main thing. And you may not be the preacher, but what you do matters and is so important. So important. Well, another application, even though you may not be a preacher, All of us must be faithful to reprove, rebuke, and exhort one another through the scriptures. All of us. This is not a task just for the preacher up front. This is a task for the body, for each other. So, parents, you have a front row seat to the sin of your children, don't you? Don't ignore it. Don't sweep it under the rug. Don't think, oh, they're going to figure that out themselves. And don't just deal with the external behavior without dealing with the heart. Out of love for them and a desire to see them reconcile to God, expose their sinful hearts through the word. Show them. Get to the root sin cause and show them through the scriptures. Be faithful to reprove your child. Brothers and sisters, you live out your Christian lives in the body, you're going to inevitably encounter others backsliding or pursuing foolish ways and worldly lusts, and you're going to be tempted to stay silent. Why? 
Because confrontation is messy. It's complicated. And you don't know how they're going to respond to you. They might not like you. In fact, they may hate you for doing that. But don't give in. God wants you to biblically rebuke your brothers and sisters through the word to keep them on the road, the right road to Christ. You'll be that voice to turn them around. Maybe you lead in an area, in the area of ministry or maybe you're leading a brother or sister in Bible study. There are going to be those you serve who are going to be tired and discouraged and depressed from pressing on in their walk. Don't ignore their need. Don't tell them just to get over it. Spend the time to exhort them, to appeal to them, to plead with them, to take up their strength in Christ. Call them to persevere and endure. Impart those precious promises of God's word so that they can lean on them and gain strength from them. See, that task to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort with patience, it doesn't just belong to preachers. It's something for all of us. You know, I remember um, getting a great job right out of high school, and my friend got it for me. It was working for this hospital, and the hourly on it was amazing. There was one problem, though. Uh, I had to work Sundays, and during that time, I was meeting with my discipler. And my discipler found out that that's what was happening. And he pulled me aside one day in our meeting. He said, hey, I heard you have a job and, you know, it keeps you on Sunday. Can I ask you, do you feel like you, that is a must? Like, is that a necessity for you at this time of your life? And immediately I was offended. <laughs> what are you talking about? This is a great opportunity. I can make a whole bunch of money right? I, I'm, a, I'm a college student. I need to save. But his words just rang in my ear, you know? So I went home, and I started to think about what was most important for my soul. I was reminded of text that says, do not forsake the gathering of one another, and how important body life is. You know, slowly, his rebuke, his reproof, was taken by the Holy Spirit and started to work on me. And a few weeks later, I turned in my two-week notice. And my friend was very angry at me <laughs> who got me that job. But what happened? God used the reproof and rebuke so that I might not forsake what was of most importance. To be under the preached word, to be with God's people, to be strengthened, to use my gift won't that be you? Could you possibly be that one that helps call another to walk more firmly with more strength in Christ? What a privilege it is to be God's instrument to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. So how will anyone be saved? How will anyone be changed? How will anyone grow in spiritual maturity? It will only be through the proclamation other word. So saint, proclaim it. Proclaim it to yourself. Proclaim it to others. And there is no more important work than this. So heed the seriousness of that charge to proclaim the word. Realize the seriousness of your charge. Now second, 
Remember why you must proclaim the word. Remember why you must proclaim the word. Verse 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Now, there are many legitimate reasons that we should stay faithful to proclaiming the word. We should proclaim the word because it alone brings about the change that's needed in hearts. We just talked about that. We proclaim the word because Christ, who is the theme of the word, is worthy to be proclaimed. Amen, that's true. Proclaim the word because it's the charge that God has given to the church and to preachers. Amen. Now these are all true, but here in these verses, God gives a different reason why we proclaim the word. It's because of the time that we're in. That's why we preach. Now, how is the time described in verse 3 and 4? It's a time when people are going to refuse true and good biblical preaching and trade it out for teaching that follows fleshly pleasures. That's the time. It says they will not endure sound doctrine. They will have, uh, the word there is itchy ears. It's translated there in, as having their ears tickled, but the literal is itching ears. And you know what happens when you have an itch, right? You got to have it scratched. You have this desire and it must be satisfied. And so what do they do? They collect teachers who will scratch that itch for them. That's the kind of teachers they get. And in so doing, they turn away from the truth. Now think about that for a second. Shouldn't that be a reason why we don't proclaim the truth? Shouldn't that be a reason why we are discouraged to proclaim the truth? If no one's going to want to hear it, then why should we be eager to still proclaim it? Well, there's a big implication here. God expects that you will not turn tail and run when you see the times. God expects that you will instead run toward it with the word. That you will run toward a hard world with the word the expectation is that the worse the world gets the more urgent the need of the gospel the harder the hearts the greater our zeal to proclaim the word that softens the hard heart we double down on proclaiming the word because that's what a deceived and hardened people need most that's why you preach because of the times you know, in our flesh, we're not the best at deciding what's best for us. When I was young, my favorite foods were french fries, root beer, and candy. And if, that is, if I got to decide in my diet, that would be all I eat, and I'd probably be dead because of it. We're just not good at deciding what's best for us. And these people, this age, are ones that are accumulating for themselves people that giving them what they think they want but it's killing them. It's leading them to destruction. And why should we keep preaching to this hardened world? Because of God's mercy and compassion. That's why. What is our natural reaction hearing of what kind of times these are going to be? I know at least for me, 
It's judgment. My natural reaction is to the hardened age, write them off. Be content to leave them in their hopeless state. Wish God's immediate judgment on them. But you know, in this time, while we await Christ's return, that is not God's heart. That is not how God feels. Second Peter uh, 3.9 puts it this way, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all come to repentance. This is exactly why the Lord Jesus tarries. Because God is merciful and compassionate. And he doesn't have a gut reaction like I do. His heart is toward that hardened generation. And thinking, think about who's writing this. Is there anyone more undeserving? Was there anyone more sealed in the hardened age than Paul? Than Saul of Tarsus? If you would have wrote anyone off, if anyone shouldn't have become a Christian, shouldn't have been Saul of Tarsus, should never be a Christian. But what happened? The word came to him. Christ himself revealed himself to Paul. What mercy. What mercy. You see, God says, this is why you preach. You don't look at the hardened generation and say, oh, let them be. No, he says, why do you preach the word? Because you run toward them with the word that can do something. You run toward them with the word that's powerful to change hearts and melt the heart and change someone like a Saul of Tarsus. That's why. That's the reason. Spurgeon put it this way, in the way only Spurgeon can. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Why preach the word? Because this is the one thing that can do something in a hardened generation. This is the one thing that can do something to the hardened heart. And so we run toward the difficult generation. We run toward those who have turned away. The difficult times should not make us fold in our responsibility to proclaim the word, but it makes us all the more determined to keep preaching without compromise. And all of us can say, we were once sealed in a darkened and hardened age, and I should have never come, but then someone came forth with the word to me. And aren't you glad that they did? Preach the word. Preach the word. Realize the seriousness of the charge and remember you, why you must proclaim the word. And lastly, reach the end of your call to proclaim the word. Reach the end of your call. Verse 5. But you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Now in contrast to those who won't endure this sound doctrine, Timothy, 
has to stay clear-minded about his task. He needs to be willing to endure the evils that are going to come with carrying the gospel. He must do the work which he's been called to do and as he's been entrusted with that gospel. He must complete the ministry that God has given him. And you know, though you may not be a preacher and you may not necessarily be gifted as an evangelist, this still applies to you. This still applies. You too are called to live in contrast to this ear-tickling world. God has given you a ministry, a ministry in your home, a ministry to your spouse, a ministry to your children, a ministry in the church, whether formal or informal, a ministry to your neighbor and your community. This command applies to you. Fulfill your ministry. The world is going to try to veer you away from it. Be sober. It's going to be a lot of hard work to do. So endure. It's going to take knowing and speaking the gospel. So be ready to carry it. And Paul points to himself as this example. Look at what Paul says about the way he finishes. He says in verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul gives an amazing description of himself as he nears the end of his life. He says, I'm a drink offering. He likens himself to the libation that's poured out on the Jewish sacrifices. It was the pouring out of some sort of liquid. It was usually wine or water or sometimes honey onto the sacrifice that was being burned. And when it would hit that fire, it would produce this steam that would go up in a fragrance that is pleasing to the Lord. And Paul says, that's me. My life is that which is poured out as a fragrant offering to God. What a picture. And he says, the time of my departure has come. His departure has been imminent. In other words, it was as if Paul saying, Timothy, I've already been holding up the train for my departure to glory. The time has already come where I should be on my way. So you must be willing and ready to take my place so I could get going. Time is here. Paul had battled to the end. He had fought the good fight. He completed what God had called him to do. And during that whole time, he held on to the right belief. He held to the faith to the very end. What a statement of completion. What a statement of satisfaction with no regret. And you notice where his eyes are gazed. They're not on this world, but on the next. He anticipates what's coming. The crown of righteousness that will be awarded to him for all his labors. And the crown he's talking about is the righteousness that comes to the believer in glorification. You remember Paul's preaching in Romans and Galatians? He preached strongly justification by faith alone. Because the sinner trusts in Christ alone, Christ imputes, Christ 
reckons his righteousness to the sinner so that he's clothed in righteousness. And that's position, right? The position of the one who's received Christ, the position is fully righteous because they are clothed with Christ's righteousness. That's a beautiful thing. But Paul is saying, I will finally know that in practice. The reward coming to me is I will finally be that. What I was only in position, I will actually be practically because Christ will reform me and give me a new nature that will not ever sin, cannot sin. The full righteousness in glorification. 1 John 3, 2 puts it this way, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. Oh, think of that day when you'll be fully fitted to fellowship with the holy God and your holy Savior forever and ever. What you were in position, now you are in practice. You will never suffer the, the, the sufferings of Sin. Wow. And he says, that is what I'm looking forward to. Hurry up, Timothy. My train's leaving. That's where my eyes are. Right? What a statement of ending well. What a statement of ending well. Like Paul, will you be willing to fight the good fight of faith? How will you finish your course? What legacy will you leave? Charles Thomas Studd, C.T. Studd, was, lived from 1860 to 1931. He was born into wealth and destined for affluence. He was converted during his college years at Cambridge and became a follower of Christ in his own day, he was the Michael Jordan of cricket. Everyone expected him to go pro, to play professionally, and return to London and embrace a life of riches and influence. But instead, Stud chose to forsake it all for the sake of participating in God's global purposes. Stud was part of what became known as the Cambridge Seven a group of culturally affluent men who laid down the fame and flattery of men and became evangelists in unknown parts of the world. Those men embraced the sacrifice with joy and out of joy of what God had done for them in Christ. Stud would minister in India, in Africa, in China, and many people have actually never heard of Charles Thomas Stud, but heaven knows him very well. And this is his poem, which is fitting. It says this, Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave. 
and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its days I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep, faithful and true, whatever the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Dear Saint, will you fight the good fight of faith? You got one life. That's it. Is Christ worth it? Is his beautiful gospel worth it? To run to an evil generation with the word. Is he worth it? If you would fight the good fight like Paul, like Timothy, like C.T. Studd, make the most of that one life. Treasure the word. Persevere in that. Protect the word and proclaim the word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your... 